Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Ola Eriksred, and we'll be discussing all things deceleration and change direction. Follow along as we unpack the paper, Biomechanical and Neuromuscular Performance Requirements of Horizontal Deceleration, a review with implications for random, intermittent, multidirectional sports. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, voldperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. Are you using your Cybex, Biodex, or Humac Isokinetic system to its fullest potential? Most machines are used 90% for training and 10% for testing. If this is not you, check out the free online course Isokinetics 101 for the classroom by CSMI. In 90 minutes, you will learn how isokinetic machines are used in the clinic for testing and to improve range of motion, stability, control, and strength. If you need CEUs, earn eight CEUs by signing up and completing our full online course, Isokinetics 101 Online. This course is approved for PTs, PTAs, and ATCs. To find out more, visit humacnorm.com and head to resources. Hola. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For any of the listeners who haven't heard about you just yet, would you mind just giving them a brief background and maybe intro to you? Sure, sure. Um, Like yourself, uh, trained as a physical therapist, uh, UConn grad. Um, Then I worked at UConn uh, academically. teaching and, and also running a clinic before I moved back overseas to Oslo, Norway in 2005, which seems like a long time ago, but uh, it is what it is. Um, uh, work at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. Uh, PhD is in biomechanics and motor control. Uh, consult with the Norwegian Olympic Paralympic Committee uh, on different projects and, and, and different athletes. Um, I'm also in the applied domain, just to ensure you that. Uh, and then one of the founders of uh, 1080 Motion and Athletic 1080, which is 1080 Motion is motorized resistance technology. So uh, we've been around for the past uh, past decade now. A combination of multiple outlets and it keeps you busy, I'm sure. Um, but yes, one yes. area that yeah, one area that I really was uh, sparked to kind of have you on was just your expertise in your area from a deceleration perspective and change of direction. Um, So just in general, what really sparked that interest in yourself from a deceleration and change of direction perspective as a whole? Yeah, and also I I think it's important that we uh, acknowledge uh, some of the authors, the the other authors of of that paper in question here, Uh, Damien Harper being, you know, a very important engine for sure in in, in that process and and all the other uh, authors on that. But we we, we share a common passion, I think, and that's what's kind of led us together somehow in mysterious ways, so to speak. But I I, I do think that um, 
it's been a large focus on the concentric phase and the acceleration of things. And uh, if we're looking at multi-directional sports, whether that is team or individual, uh, what is always preceding that acceleration is is, is a deceleration. Uh, it's far less explored and it's far less studied. And uh, it, it's fundamental to performance. And if we start to look into the demands of it, we see that the forces are greater, uh, which means that we also should be very considerate in that regard. And we'll get back to some of the talking points in terms of in, pos, you know, possible links to injury and injury prevention and what have you. And if we're looking at, for instance, one lower extremity injury, uh, non-contact uh, ACL injury, we, we always look at the D-cell. It's on the D-cell side of things. And then we look at the a split second or, or some milliseconds prior to or after that final foot contact. And uh, I've always been very interested in that the hold. So if I'm looking at a change of direction, I want to understand what is happening coming in to that turn at a more macro level. And how does that relate to my reacceleration, whether that is in a 90 degree turn or 135 or 180 or whatever kind of turn you have. So that's where my, my interest comes from. So looking a little bit, taking a step back and looking a little bit more macro at it. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is historically we have tested and we've used overall time of... Uh, change the direction tests. It does not really tell me how you do within the different phases of that movement. And when I say different phases of that movement, uh, in a simple change of direction, you have an initial acceleration to a deceleration, then you have a turn, and then you have a reacceleration. If I do overall time, I can mask it. I can pace myself to get an okay time. But if I get information about those different two phases, I might be able to understand my athlete or patient in front of me better. And thereby, I could possibly prescribe uh, my treatment, uh, rehab, or, or, or training better. So that was a long-winded and a long answer. But I, I think all of those factors combined have contributed to it. 100%. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. It's this idea, like... When you're this, the last point that you just made was this idea of like when you're testing change of direction as a whole, you know, you're there are so many factors that are going to go into that person's ability to change direction quickly. Um, and there's this adage uh, that goes around, at least in the, the PT circles that I surround myself with, of the idea that the test tests what the test tests, right? And so if you're testing change of direction, you're going to test the entirety of that individual's ability to change direction. Um, but if we want to look at determinants of change of direction or things like that, then we need to zoom in and we need to narrow our focus and actually test the thing that we want to test, which would be deceleration or actual change of direction timing or acceleration or things like that. Um, and I think that you put that beautifully just in terms of like, we, we need to get a better understanding of these determinants as a whole. Yeah, because I've always observed, you know, and, and I'm sure the, the listeners have observed people too that kind of pace themselves coming in. I'm like almost preparing myself to set up a good reacceleration. And that's been an observation for years, right? And that's even been described in the literature too. And Sophia Nymphius has done a wonderful job. Uh, again, 
you have to give credit where credit is due. So in, in one of her papers from, I believe it's 2017 or 16, where she like goes through an awesome review of, of all the tests and shortcomings and, and what have you, she points to that, that it's important that we have some sort of continuous measurement during the movement to better understand this important quality. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. Definitely. So before we dive into the paper, I kind of like asking this question just sort of as a precedent for the podcast, as well as just set expectations. Um, but when you look back at the this paper that you and this team wrote, um, what gap do you feel like it filled for the performance and sports community? Uh, I think D-Cell has been put on the map. And I think there have been multiple people. Uh, I, I mentioned Damien. Uh, Tom, Thomas Dos Santos, uh, I don't know, there, there are many more, uh, John Kiley, uh, there, there are many, many people there that has been involved uh, in that process. But it's it's been underexplored and underappreciated because it might be difficult, right? So it's easier. To, it's been easier for us to look at Excel. So it, it, it fills that little void, that little gap, and it's something that many, many people have been, like I was you know, alluding to earlier here, observing this. But how do I deal with it? What, do I, what can I do with it? And, and if you look at a lit, if you do like a lit review uh, or, or, or a search and you're looking at Excel versus D-cell, it's, and horizontally, I might add, um, it, it's, it's a massive difference. Because you can you can regard a counter movement jump as a vertical change of direction, right? And that vertical change of direction, the, the counter movement jump, we divide it into you know different eccentric phases and, and then the concentric portion, right? Why why can't we apply the same kind of thinking into the horizontal domain? And this is what we've done. Definitely, just your uh, mention of the. The, I guess maybe dichotomy between horizontal and vertical. Um, one of your colleagues as well, Damien Harper had published an article that kind of compared the two in terms of the like uh, vertical horizontal or uh, vertical and horizontal kind of deceleration components. Um, do you view somebody as like, if, if they had show high marks on a vertical deceleration from whether it's a counter movement jump or a depth jump or something like that, um, do you view them to just inherently have better decel qualities that would transfer to the horizontal deceleration uh, from a change of direction perspective? Or do you feel like those two factors are just kind of better attributed to the description of like just them being a better athlete as a whole? Uh, that's a great question because, uh, and, and the answer is always ambiguous and, and it, it depends. But if you have a good drop jump and a good counter movement jump, you have some resources there. But uh, does that mean that you're effective, efficient in the horizontal domain? Because sometimes you observe people, and this is where actually looking at both is helpful. Because sometimes you have people and you observe them and vertically they could be really good solid and you put them horizontally and it's a completely different it's a different different expression of deceleration quality uh because one is the counter movement jump or, or the drop jump very short you know it's it's vertical the force is vertically oriented 
if you're going to decel horizontally, you have to express force or forces horizontally. So obviously, technique plays a big, big part of that equation. Uh, so yeah, there are neuromuscular factors that feeds feeds that that will, will you know will be uh, to some extent similar, but it's not the same uh, between vertical and horizontal. But the technical execution over multiple steps um, has a different requirement, right? So, di uh, sorry, different requirement. Uh, I would like to rephrase that. It is an eccentric component to both, sure, uh, but it is a different movement pattern. And and I've done this for for decades. That sounds kind of weird to say that, but I've all I, and I, we've assessed uh, and looked at vertical force, lateral force, anterior force, posterior force. Uh, we've used motorized resistance technology for that. And then we correlate my max uh, qualities in different directions. And some, sometimes for different teams in different sports, those correlations are surprisingly low, which then speaks to me that there is some sort of direction, uh, you know, specificity in terms of directionality. Yeah, I, that's, that's a very uh, beautifully said, just because it's, it's difficult. We're never going to have all of the answers uh, associated with these sorts of performance characteristics. But um, I think getting getting on track a little bit, I do think that it's also important that, like you had mentioned, you know, um, both are going to require certain technical domains. You know, both are going to require some sort of kinetic domains and kinematic domains that may look similar. And it may or may not be just the representation that, um, you know, good athletes can, you know, decelerate good athletes can accelerate good athletes can utilize the uh you know stretch shortening cycle or whatever other sort of capacities that we're trying to test um in order to leverage that to improve their own performance but um yeah i just think it's it's a fun more thought experiment i guess uh, more than anything yeah no i agree um so as your paper touched on there are some insanely high rates of loading and peak forces that occur during maximal decelerations. Can you just give us a better understanding on, you know, which metrics you would recommend tracking for deceleration um, and how much load these athletes are actually experiencing during these tasks? Yeah, because if you're looking at the numbers, you, you see that the <clears throat> the magnitude of the forces are, are, are far greater um, during the decel as compared to the the uh, reacceleration phase, and that also depends on um, a couple of things, obviously, uh, but largely it depends on your momentum coming in. <laughs> because if you're doing, say, a modified five hundred five, you have only a five meter um, uh, acceleration to de uh, deceleration phase, which means that the tests that we have done, they're looking at. For between four and five meters per second, that's the velocity that they assume before they have to slam on the brakes, right? Uh, and it's a short time frame uh, between 1.2, 1.5 seconds, maybe. Uh, so that is going to happen very, very quickly. And, and the forces are not necessarily that great. Uh, but when you're starting to increase uh, the uh, the initial acceleration to deceleration phase. Say you have a 10-meter approach and a 15-meter approach, and that's been our mechanisms for actually assessing this. Uh, we've been using motorized resistance technology with this. So we do a modified 505, 
we do a 10.05 and then we do a 15.05 by, and, and we keep the loading, the external loading the same. So the only thing that we are manipulating is approach distance. And also I think it's a good one because you allow the athlete to assume the velocity that they are comfortable with, which in itself tells a story. How that max velocity in that initial XL to D cell phase actually manifests itself. Uh, and then you give people the freedom to select their momentum, which in turn they have to slow down. And then you see with longer tests, longer D cell phases, and uh, it's a fairly even even distribution. Uh, we, we have an abstract submitted now to the IOC Congress in Monaco that actually talks about these things. Uh, we'll see if they accept it. Uh, that's that's a different story. So if you listen to this and you, you don't see the abstract there, that's, that's going to be embarrassing, but that's, uh, that's another topic. But... Um, what kind of metric would you use? Uh, I, I think that's a great, great question because if you if you look at a counter movement jump, I'm, I'm going to go back to that one. If you look at a counter movement jump on the force plate, uh, we have a system and we can select between 180 different output variables. That's a jungle. That is a uh, that's a difficult place. So then we have to maneuver through that. So. The place that we have started, uh, and we've started in a very simple form, we have just taken the time. We're looking at initial XL to D cell, and we're looking at time. And then we're looking at reacceleration, and we're looking at time. And then we look at total time. And then we take the ratio between those two phases. That's our starting point. Because a ratio between those two phases is actually interesting because that shows your distribution, right? So in a modified 505, you're looking at a good performance. It's a 1.1, 1.2 ratio. And then you're looking at 1.4, 1.5. That's a, they're favoring something. They're not really willing to de decelerate. So we're starting with the simplest measurement of time. And, and this is also where we have to think about what's easiest for the practitioners out there. Because we can get lost in metrics and we can present this you know excel sheets and papers and, and, and everything and we get data we don't even know what to do with it so so we have started with just expressing uh expressing time then if i'm going to go down the rabbit hole from there i would look at okay what was the maximum speed you were willing to assume during uh, that diesel because we've seen with injuries that people are not willing to assume as great a speed also i always test left versus right turn because you might see very different behaviors left to right so i like to have that in the mix i give them the option i just leave it open uh you know just go for that run and, and turn and come back here all right and then they self-select so I allow them to do that two times, and then I do two times on the other leg, just to see what that looks like. And then we're using Damien's approach, uh, where he's taking from max velocity to the turn and call that the deceleration phase, and then divided that into different phases. And then again, we're using time there right now. 
we're in the process of writing a whole bunch of stuff on this uh, and we're aggregating a massive database on it. Uh, and the purpose of that is actually to provide uh, listeners here with some sort of reference data, with some sort of time measurements. So when they do it, they have something to lean on and say, is this a good thing or is it not so good? You know, because sometimes we end up with values and we don't even know what they mean. And, and that sounds bad coming from a scientist like myself, but, you know, we have to be relevant to people in the field. And everything that I do, at least I try to be relevant to people in the field. So, and, and that's also helping myself because I work in the applied setting. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a dual, dual duality there. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. And because if, you, if you're going to get into, if you're going to get into forces, yeah, we can take velocity data. We know the mass of the athlete. Um, from there, we can calculate the accelerations uh, based upon changes in velocity. And we can get into horizontal forces. Uh, so we can calculate that. That would be further down in the hierarchy, if you will. No problems doing that. But we have to we have to be cognizant of not getting caught up in too many variables that confuses us and and and, and does not allow us. So so always start on the simple side, and then you can dive in. I, I think that would be my my recommendation. Definitely. And uh, I think that that was great in terms of just laying things out. You had mentioned a little bit on um, using these uh, timing ratios, right? In terms of, you know, uh, entry versus exit or Excel versus decel. Um, however, there's there can be occasionally limitations when we just take data from ratios. Can you maybe expand upon what uh, limitations you may see with that? Absolutely. Uh, because you have to know what you get, right? We always have to know what we're getting. So I can have a ratio, and I let's say a modified 505 time. Let's say 2.8 to 3 seconds. Um, but let's say that's a good one. Uh, I can have a ratio of 1.1. Oh, this is great. But the overall time is 3.6. So then that ratio becomes worthless in a sense because it has to be anchored on onto the total time, the total performance, because I can walk and change the direction and have a really good ratio, but my total time is awful. So we have to understand the limitations of, of, of doing that. And that's where total time comes in, which historically has been used. And we criticize because it doesn't reflect what's happening during the test. But we need it also as a reference to look at it, like you, you were saying initially here. We, we, we need that as a reference to say whether that was an overall good good performance or not, not so good performance. So, uh, yeah, we have to understand limitations, what we get and what we're not getting. Can you maybe just go into a little bit, I, you alluded to it a little bit beforehand, but um, talking about this idea between even further compartmentalizing idea from a change of direction perspective um, and taking um, deceleration into its own components of early deceleration and late deceleration. Um, can you just talk about um, you know what those are, define those terms, and maybe certain qualities that might define early versus late decel? Yeah. 
Uh, I wish I had like a PowerPoint to like show everyone here a graph, but I'm uh, I'm not going to bore you with that. Um, okay, so what's gonna when you do uh, a change of direction? I'm going to use I'll use the modified five hundred five. Keep in mind, you can also use just a sprint to a stop for the same purpose. So you can do a decel without the turn, or you can do a decel with the turn. Our data suggests that greater forces, if we compare the forces that we have observed uh, using with turn as compared to just coming to a stop, greater forces are associated when you do a turn as to when you don't do a turn. So from a, say, from a rehab progression perspective, coming to a stop induces smaller forces than coming uh, and, and going into a turn. So keep that in mind. The same kind of approach can be used uh, for both. So you, uh, you start your initial acceleration. You assume what we call a maximum speed during that initial acceleration to deceleration phase. And then we say, okay, when does this happen? So we kind of mark that time point. Then you're either coming to a stop or you're doing a turn. Um, the way that we have defined it in change of direction is when the velocity changes direction, right? So when it reaches zero and it goes in the opposite direction, because we've used a 180 degree turn here. So then you have a time interval from Vmax, and let's call when you change direction uh, V0 or, or, or just a zero point. Uh, V0, not to be confused with the force velocity profiling of uh, linear sprinting. So keep that in mind for those who, who understood what I was talking about there. Uh, then you have a time interval. Then you have, that's a phase. And then we define that phase as the deceleration phase. And then we have different options, actually. But currently, the option that is used is that we divide that phase further into early deceleration and late deceleration. And that is based upon your reduction in velocity. So when from your maximum velocity to a 50% reduction in velocity, let's define that as early deceleration. From that 50% reduction to zero, that's your late deceleration. So that's the current definitions. We're working on different models there. So uh, I'm not gonna, we, we will come out with something. We're, we're gonna write up some interesting things. I have a great master student, uh, Tobias, uh, working on, on some really cool stuff. And we have a meeting actually later on today about, uh, hmm, let's, uh, let's dive a little deeper into this. Not to confuse the listener, but maybe help and guide and aid the listener. Just a quick break in this Research Unpacked episode. At Inform Performance, you may have noticed that we're launching more webinars and courses online from some of the expert guests that we're lucky to record episodes with. If you head to informperformance.com and click on Education, you can see our growing webinar and course offering. One upcoming example is Claire Robertson, who we just had on the show, who's releasing a course with us called Managing Patellofemoral Pain for Athletes. We'll be releasing regular offers and new courses, so keep an eye on our education page so you don't miss out. When we're thinking about early versus late deceleration, uh, kind of compartmentalizing those two, 
Are there differences in maybe loads, rates of loading, or things like that that you guys have found between these two phases in deceleration? Are there like any other kinetic variables that you can use to describe these two different phases? Yeah. Uh, if I'm doing a shorter test, say the modified 505, I have a five meter in, five meter out, greater force is late. Because you have to slam on the brakes late. Uh, that's what we're seeing. Uh, if I have a longer approach, uh, greater force and power early. During the early. Uh, and I think that has to do with preparation. Because I can prepare better and distribute better. And I can distribute over a longer distance and a longer time. So those are some of the things. Uh, Magnitude-wise, what is very fascinating, what we've found, is that the momentum stays the same during those two phases. Almost identical. So if I divide into those two phases and I look at momentum, now we're diving into details here, everyone. My apologies. But if we're, if we're looking at momentum, the momentum stays the same for those. It's not same between tests necessarily, but within the test, it's almost, this is speculative, it's almost like it's momentum that is regulating how we actually uh, decelerate because they are the values that are consistent between early and late deceleration if we're using these criteria. So we, so I'm sorry for the detail there. So momentum, momentum, and therefore impulse. Momentum is the product of mass and velocity. And so everyone is with us. Um, that's amazing, and I think that it's it is quite interesting to understand. You know, this idea of you know what is, what are the external variables that we aren't tracking yet or that we're not familiar with yet um, or familiar with well enough to the point where that are actually, um, I guess, moderating these sorts of outcomes. Um, and I think that it's, it, it is such an interesting perspective and just uh, area to dive into. Um, and you had I, mentioned, go for it. Yeah. Could I add, add one thing there? I, I was at a demonstration. I was down in Gothenburg and I got a brilliant question. Um, uh, what kind of data are we looking at in 10, 15 years? And I was like, I've been thinking about it, uh, sure. Uh, but it's rare that I get that question. So I was like, oh, that's all right. Let's go. Um, because what we're seeing, and, and obviously I use a lot of motorized resistance technology, and I use a lot of that in my research. And one of the reasons for that is that I can, we have validated it in the lab and we've tested it for reliability. Uh, so reliability of all the data and the uh, uh, outcome measurements that I was just talking about uh, will be published in open access in Frontiers shortly. So it's, it's going to be available to all of you. Uh, back to that question. It's what we're seeing when we're looking at velocity and how people actually express velocity over a change of direction. I think those continuous data it's almost like a fingerprint. We're starting to see that. So I think like there, there are going to be, we're looking, we're, we're going to start to look at the whole because if, if we start to st take a step back and we think, okay, we're going to divide early and late diesel based upon 50% reduction. It's a logical definition for sure. But 
are we actually missing something because we're implying, applying those definitions? Whether Or maybe we should take a step back and say, we're going to look open at this. We're going to look at the whole expression. We're going to look at the whole data series. We're going to look at all the continuous data. And then we're going to say, how is this different in a good performance versus a not so good performance? Then we can maybe, you know, open up and uh, see things that we might not otherwise see if we divide it into our predefined phases that we think are, uh, are are good. So that's almost a philosophical question, but I we've seen these differences. Especially, uh, for instance, with an ankle sprain, we see there are big differences in the deceleration phase. And we're seeing this expression, and we're seeing this whether we're doing a modified 505, 1005, or 1505. It's a similar behavior. And if we're looking at continuous data, we are able to see it. So I, I think... That is also another aspect of this that I that I wanted to throw in there. So it's 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 a fingerprint. That's what we're starting to see. So I just have almost a personal question here. When we're looking at these, um, almost I guess we like dichotomize change direction one more time, um, and looking at it from a predictive versus anticipatory. Do you think that? Um, we would see a difference in this like uh, momentum characteristic more similar to like that uh, modified uh, you know five meter entry point um, or something like that because you don't have as much time to slam on the brakes you just have to do it with the uh, reactive component um, or do you think that there would be some other variables that I might be missing there? No, I think you touched on a very very important point. Uh, agility and change of direction are different things. Uh, even though they're used synonymously, we have to be careful and we have to understand why and how they're different. Agility, in, you know, involves, includes decision-making, whereas change of direction, in my opinion, is just a, a physical capacity. It's a capacity to do do a turn, you know, XL, D-cell, and then re-XL. So when we, when we talk about the test that we've talked about thus far, we, we've taken that decision-making out of the equation. Now, we're starting to, you know, think about how, how can we also include decision-making into this? Because if you look at non-contact, I'm back on non-contact cruciate ligament injuries again. What are we seeing? We're seeing late deci- decisions. Usually on the, de- um, this is an example from uh, soccer or what we call football, rightfully so, if I might add. But uh, we're seeing, especially in females, we're seeing that there is late decisions and then I'm exposing myself on the deceleration side. So decision-making becomes important. Nevertheless, we also need that physical quality, those neuromuscular reactive qualities to actually be able to then deal with that, call it late slash poor decision that we made. So... That's one thing that we're starting to explore to see, and we're doing, uh, we have some good prospective data on this where we've integrated this into our test battery with uh, team handball players with the Oslo Trauma Research Center here to see 
are there differences in those uh, individuals with ACL injuries that are there ways that they prepare themselves prior to the term? Are there some identifiers there that we can observe and look at? So we're, we're starting to include that into the process or, or pipeline or thinking, if, if, if you will. But, but decision-making, absolutely. So if you have if you're really good and quick decision making and have the reactive slash neuromuscular qualities in place, that would be really good. That would be really That's... good. Again, we're we're dichotomizing, right? So we're putting them into buckets, but they belong together. Definitely. And it's similar to what we were talking about earlier. Some maybe these are all just the characteristics that are there with high level athletes, you know, maybe that's just like what creates a high level athlete, because oftentimes when you look at the elite end of sport, um, yes, they are the best of the best, but it also could just be a representation of, Hey, like these are the people who's either decision-making or like just their physical, like genetics and, you know, uh, I don't know, anthropometry and things like that. Like they, that allowed them to hold on to like their performance for this long. You know, they were able to avoid injury. They were able to, um, you know, uh, stave off those negative effects of, you know, recovery or injury or anything along those lines. And so I just think it's a, it's a very interesting topic to dive into. Yeah. And I, I think we, 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 we should, should go there because historically we've seen data where let's call it elite and almost elite athletes. And we're just looking at change of direction and they'd be having, they, were, they have been the same. And then we have taken agility and we've taken decision-making into the mix. And then we see a difference between um, elite versus close to elite. Now, how did they assess that? What kind of methodologies did they actually then use to assess the change of direction uh, in those studies? And I think we can build upon that to explore that further. Maybe we reached the same conclusion and, and, and that's okay. But then at least we've tried to dissect it a little bit more. So that that is my perspective on that one because people can attack it from that point and say, well, there is no difference between elite and sub-elite. Sure. But what kind of tool did they use to define to to to, to measure? We have better resolution now. Okay, let's let's maybe revisit that question. I love all that. Um we've been kind of hovering around these this one topic that i kind of wanted to dive into that the paper that you guys wrote touched on beautifully um and that's the you know maybe certain considerations for um the idea of the penultimate step and the antepenultimate step um and how they you know differ in their abilities to you know alter horizontal momentum um could you maybe break that down for us just so that the listeners can have a better understanding of those two so the uh, the ultimate and the antepenultimate. Yeah, the penultimate and the antepenultimate. Well, you you see that you know, and and again, I, I think this also has to do with and 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 we're we're seeing this in our data too, where we've tested systematically five, five oh five, ten oh five, and fifteen oh five. The longer the approach, the more forces that you have earlier in that D cell, right? And, and that's what you've been seeing, and that's what's, what was described in, in, in that paper, too. However, if you have a short one, you have to turn quickly. You shift it. So 
But when that paper was written, we didn't have that data to that extent available to us or, or within the same study to compare. And, and some of these data that I'm talking about right now have not been published either. So um, we have to wait for that to come out. But it is a earlier distribution, so to speak. And, and, you, and you see that it, it's higher early. If that if that's the uh, if that's what you're after there, yeah, no, definitely, and it it, it was just a interesting thought uh, process that the paper had highlighted, just showing how the the antepenultimate versus the penultimate step um, was just able to, if I'm reading it correctly, was able to better dissipate some of the horizontal forces associated with the. Um, yeah. change of direction. And so I think that um, it is interesting because you had brought up this concept of, you know, we're, when we look at change of direction, we're testing capacities um, because it's change of direction. They know exactly what they're doing and so that you can, they can essentially prepare for this task. Um, yeah. However, another author that you'd also mentioned, Tom DeSantos, uh, yeah. had published some work earlier in his career in terms of showing how the the contribution of the penultimate step is considerably less when there's a reactive component um and just trying to trying to discern almost and maybe even in your opinion do you think that um when we're looking at capacities right the the change of direction itself is a capacity but do you feel like uh agility in its true definition of reaction um is a capacity in and of itself or do you feel like they're just kind of two ends of the same coin they are related but they're also different and that's like uh, Winnie the Pooh answer. Yes, yes, both. Thank you. Uh, because it's like, you know, you have to have a certain capacity, right? So you can be you can be awesome at decision making, but you can't move, right? That doesn't help you. So 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 they have there is there is a relationship, and then the question becomes how much, right? Good enough, good enough to do what, at what level? You know, and 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 Thomas, uh, Thomas has done some brilliant work in that regards, and and you know, obviously, some of the things that he did uh, had the requirements of uh, you know force plates, which many of us don't have. We have it here in the lab, but when I go out to work with a 15, 16 year old playing basketball, we don't have force plates. So then we have to use you know proxy measurements and that's when the motorized resistance comes in because at least we can get some sort of understanding of, of, of how they do it but back to your question they're different but they're also related and then the question becomes okay uh we haven't even touched upon it but what kind of angular turn do you do that's one thing right uh, a lot of the things that I've talked about here has been a 180-degree turn. And then we have to break that down, and then we have to look at the sport, and we have to say, all right, that's great, Ola. How many 180-degree turns do we do? All right, that's this is the percentage of how often you do this. How about 90-degree turns? How often do you do this? All right, that's a substantially more. Okay, so the, the sharper the angle, the greater the, the, greater the angle, the more force dominant that change direction is. So if you have a 180 to 90 degree turn, we, also, we usually call that a force dominant change of direction. Between zero and 90, we call it a velocity uh, type change of direction, right? Because there is not that much force 
you know, required because you're not changing uh, the uh, direction of your velocity that much, right? So I can maintain some of that momentum. And if you're looking at one study that I always cite, which I think is great, that's Hader from uh, 215. Uh, they used uh, radar guns, I believe, to synchronize radar guns, and they did a just 100, just go sprint 135 and a 90 degree, and then you look at incrementally decreases in in velocity and and how that shifted. Um, I thought it was extremely well done, to be honest with you. So that that's that's one thing. I'm 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 sorry if I'm wearing off your question here, but yes, yes, related, but also. Uh, different. And then another thing that I would like to throw into the mix that I want the listeners to think about, what kind of locomotive pattern are you throwing into the mix? Like, am I always running? Okay, great. If I'm working with a basketball team, is that appropriate? Should I have a, a sprint to side shuffle? Should I have a side shuffle? Uh, should I have some, some lateral movement into some sort of other movement? That, that's one thing. Uh, but if I'm dealing with American football, back paddling, you know, how, how do I do that? So that locomotive pattern that we throw into the mix, and if we look at some of, some of the change of direction tests that we've used historically, sometimes they are very long and many, many turns and combines locomotive patterns, which is actually a good idea. So... If you're doing doing tests, think about the locomotive patterns associated with the tests that you do, or the the NBA, you know, the the combine testing that they do. You know, what, what kind of angular turns and what kind of locomotive patterns do we have? You know, so that's another component that has to be considered here. So, sorry, that was a little bit on a tangent here, but hopefully somewhat related. No, Ola, I think that was great. And it's, um, I think it's just, it's very helpful to appreciate those sorts of things because I think, uh, like you were saying, um, in terms of the accessibility, there's commonly, you know, if they're a clinician, if you're a coach, if you're a, a scientist, um, you don't always have access to the greatest amounts of technology or things like that. And so um, I do think that it's easy for some individuals to just say, well, let's do a running 180 degree change of direction because based on the data that we have, that's probably going to be, if we have a long entry uh, like distance, it's probably going to be the most amount of load that we're going to put through somebody. Um, and so if they can handle that, then great. They can ha probably handle other things. However, I think that disregards some of the um, kind of, like you've been mentioning, locomotive patterns or the, the kinematics or the the way in which the body orients itself associated with the very... Um, different types of change direction depending on the sport that somebody's participating in. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. Because that's, we, we've created a little model for that. Like, okay, what kind of locomotive pattern do you put into the initial XL to deceleration phase? What kind of angular turn do you do? What kind of locomotive pattern do you do? And in what direction uh, after the time? So we, 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 we try to like break that down. Does that mean that you have to assess and address all of them, all of the possible options uh, in a test session? Absolutely not. But I, I think the awareness of them and understanding the limitations of what you do is very important. 
And maybe then down the road, we can actually say, well, if, if you're in basketball, you might want to consider this one because that one seems to be related. And this is also where talking with people from other disciplines and, and if you're working in a pro sport or a collegiate sport uh, environment, you know, discussing with the, uh, you know, the, the strength coaches, with the athletic trainers, the physios, the assistant coaches and the head coaches, what, what is it that they are saying? What, what is it that they are seeing? Because those conversations can be extremely valuable. And I, I remember some of the conversations that I've been having where he, the head coach would be saying like, okay, if I put him on a, I'm talking about soccer here. If I put him on a right wing and he cuts left, he's great. But if I put him on his left wing, he's, he's, he's awful cutting to his right. Okay, what, what can we address in that regard? How can we think about that? So these are, uh, these, are, these are considerations that we have to throw into the mix here. I'm not trying to complicate things. I'm just trying to be honest. Definitely. And Ola, I think maybe uh, I would say putting you on the spot a little bit. Um, let's say you have a similar interaction, you know, whether you're uh, a consultant or whether you're working with directly with a team um, and they bring up whether it's GPS, accelerometer data, something along those lines that shows that an individual consistently is cutting left every time or cutting left 90% of the time. Um where does your mind go in terms of, you know, maybe reasons why that's the case, kind of like you had said from the uh, position-specific determinants, but um, or whether or not, like, you would actually try to consult with that player to fix what they're doing, or if that's just a manifestation of the game that they're playing and the style of play that they do? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, how, how should I start with this one? Maybe it is their strength and their, you know, that's their, it's not a secret weapon, but it, it is their weapon. It's their sharp sword. That's what they're using. That's what they're leaning on. That's what they're successful with. Um, if we're fixing the other one, are they going to use that? I'm going to use one example that blew my mind. It's anecdotal, but uh, this was Bayern Munich. This was a Champions League game. Uh, I always go to warm-ups because I like to watch the warm-ups because I think they're fascinating. Arjen Robben, Dutch player. Um, for those of you who know, uh, he's a right wing. He, uh, he actually uh, he will go down the right wing and cut to the middle of the pitch, so cut to his left. Uh, during he did not uh, work with the rest of the team during a general warm-up. What he did in warm-up, he went down the right wing and he cut to the left. During the game, he scored two goals doing that. So we have to be cognizant of what is the secret sauce, what's the winning ingredient. Uh, it could be that that is the, the most lethal weapon uh, that that athlete has. That said, uh, if you see that someone is always positioning themselves away from one side because they don't feel like they can turn or be as effective, now I'm on the defensive end of the ball here. I'm using ball sports as an example. Um, to favor something, to camouflage something, then I would probably address it. And also if the 
head coach is saying that he's always getting beat to the outside or something, right? Okay. Are there phys- physical things that we could address in that context that allows them to do that better? Looking at technique, looking at neuromuscular factors, reactive factors. Are there things there that we could address? So that is a very, very, very diff- difficult question, in my opinion. And it's very context dependent. So I think, again, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> it's like, yes, thank you both. Uh, so uh, it depends when it comes to that. But I would definitely look and go into how they do things. Um, one assessment of a basketball player, we did, uh, we did that. And then we found lateral, uh, lateral explosion coming off the left was not so good. So we saw that he favored that on the defensive side of the ball because he was afraid to be beat. So then we could get into a conversation. Uh, we saw, he knew, subconsciously, consciously. And then we started to address that issue. So that, that would be how I would you know, approach it. And then the head coach was there, which ended up with some really good discussions of ownerships ownership from the head coach, ownership within the player. Then you, if you own that process and you own that understanding, uh, that's one of the most important things that we do at the Norwegian Olympic uh, when we work with athletes. It, uh, athletes own their process. They own their training. That's what we're trying to facilitate massively, ownership. That's like a biggest, one of the biggest common denominators up there, I think. Why is he up there? It's it's right down the street. Yeah, it's not only that is, um, but it's you know the communication with other stakeholders, like you've been mentioning too. You know, it's yourself, it's other coaches, it's other uh, performance people, it's you know physical therapists, whoever it is that um, are all kind of having their hands in the bucket, so to speak. Um, Everybody's all on the same page, and everyone's communicating because not everyone's going to be able to be the best in a certain situation, which is why you can lean on a team. No, no, absolutely. And if you end up with those conversations and the head coach see that you are really thinking about what's meaningful on that pitch, you're trying to address it. And then if you're able to change that or as a function of time, you, you have a good friend. That's for sure. You have a really good friend. Ola, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time and uh, make sure that we don't take you for too long. But um, wrapping things up a little bit here, sure. what areas, talking about this paper, um, what areas would you still like to just maybe give the listeners a brief um, little bit of information about um, or a cue for them to read or um, just a little maybe synopsis about what this paper talks about and those sorts of things? It, it, it talks about... It talks about the requirements for horizontal deceleration or deceleration. That's what it talks about. Uh, and it and it, the frame the the uh, the vantage point is to to target horizontal. Um, it's a very very dense paper. It has tons of references, tables uh, with a high level of detail. So it's not like a paper, I'm just going to read this through and then I'm going to... Uh, it, it, it's one of those papers that uh, requires you to reread it uh, and think about it 
and then reread it again and, 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 and think about it. So I think this, this framework has set the stage for what's to come, right? Because now that we are increasing the awareness of that horizontal component, the obvious question is, what do we do about it? That's the obvious question that this paper leads to, which is obviously then the next paper that we're working on. How, how do you address this? How can you address this? Um, so that's, that's the next level here. So we're just trying to pinpoint a little bit of a gap uh, or somewhat understudied uh, area that we feel is very, very important to, to many things um, and raise that awareness. I think that's, that's what we're trying to do here. But uh, it, it's, it's dense. It, it's very, very dense. Well, I will certainly be some of the first in line when that next paper comes out. Um, Ola, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we're working on it, and it has been submitted somewhere. I cannot say where. Um, so it will it, it, it will see uh, it will see uh, it will be published. Hopefully, it, it depends on the review process. And for those of you who have been in a review process, you know it's a game. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens on that end. But I think that paper is really good in my own humble biased opinion. Um, and again, Damien uh, has been the engine uh, behind that paper as well. So, uh, which has led to, we are also looking at intervention studies. How do we target horizontally? So we're designing different intervention studies right now. So it, it's leading into that. It's leading into, this is wonderful, this, this paper. This is wonderful, this is great, but what do I do about it? And how can I do something about it? So that that's what is what we're trying to address there. So it, it's kind of like part one of a two part two part series, if you will. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to part two when it comes out. Yeah. So that was a little bit of an advertisement for that paper. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. Well, well, one thing that I like to ask all of our uh, guests towards the end of the podcast um, sure. is, you know, just understanding and knowing that our you know listeners are generally people in uh sports science sports rehab uh some type of strength and conditioning um all within like this kind of elite sport sector um and you know we try to bring on researchers in different areas like that who would you recommend we bring on next for the show Ooh. Damien would be a good guest. Uh, maybe wait a little bit because we've talked a little bit about it. But uh, Damien is uh, is great. Thomas Dos Santos. Um, if you want to look at the acceleration side of things, uh, Ken Clark, JB Moran, uh, obviously. I haven't gone through your entire list of uh, contributors uh, prior to, so I don't know if, if they have been on or not. But they are—they are—they're uh, really, really good people, really knowledgeable. Uh, James Wild, he—he um, he would be uh, excellent. He has some real interesting things on change of direction and agility. Uh, brilliant guy. So. Um, 
the, those those are, are a few, and now I'm talking within this kind of uh, sphere and, 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 and domain, if you will. But uh, they're excellent people. Great. Um, yeah, that is a, a powerhouse list of people. So we'll be sure yeah. to do our best to get as many of them on. And uh, just, uh, they, they, you know, if they have time, they'll say yes. That's no problem. But it's part of actually, if, if you think about it, part of, uh, you know, part of our job in academia is actually being out there sharing knowledge, right? That is part of our job description. And this is one platform of doing it. Publications is, 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 is one thing. Uh, this is another platform, sharing knowledge. So we, we should. We should be available to these things. I like that. Yeah, it's it's all about information dissemination and yep. whatever vehicle you choose to use it is up to you. But um, Ola, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners will as well. Um, for anybody who may want to get in touch with you or just reach out, um, what would be the best way and format to do that? It's, it's probably, well, you could, uh, uh, you could look at Twitter, Ola Athletic 1080. Um, Email is probably the best. Uh, I don't know if you can put that in the notes, uh, but it it is Ola uh, E at N I H dot N O. So that's uh, that, that's my email address. Uh, I'm a little bit on social LinkedIn too. You know, look me up on LinkedIn and message me on LinkedIn too. Could be a very helpful place. Um, but those, those, those three, uh, you should be able to get a hold of me. And if I don't answer right away, don't take it personally. Right on. Well, Ola, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, no, and you. we really appreciate it.